Hey listeners, Mealy and Christine here. Though we are licensed medical professionals, nothing we speak about in the well conversation should be taken as health advice. These episodes are based on a review of current research available and well-known frequently applied interventions used by professionals in the field. If you have a pre-existing medical condition, the information shared in this presentation may not be entirely safe or applicable to you. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before applying any changes to your health, especially if you have a pre-existing medical condition or are taking prescription medications. Welcome to another episode of The Well Conversation. I'm Dr. Maley. And I'm Dr. Christine. Today we'll be talking about high-functioning anxiety. Anxiety is a common mental health condition which is increasing in prevalence in society today. I could probably name 10 people off the top of my head who suffer from anxiety. And why is that? Is it the grind mentality of nonstop work for success? Or are we just more aware of the symptoms and diagnosing more individuals as time goes on? What role does social media play? How is high-functioning anxiety different than typical generalized anxiety disorder? Here with us today, we have Dr. Ellen Wong, naturopathic doctor and self-talk transformologist. Dr. Wong works with women with high-functioning anxiety to prioritize health and happiness as much as their success. After years of living with high-functioning anxiety, Dr. Ellen eventually reached a tipping point after two hospitalizations related to burnout. Although she appeared like she had it all together, she struggled internally with never-ending negative self-talk, perfectionism, and overthinking. Determined to find a solution to high-functioning anxiety, Dr. Ellen combined her clinical expertise, love for women's psychology, and even traveled to the happiest countries on earth to learn about happiness. As a naturopathic doctor, self-talk transformologist, and founder of The Joy Avenue, Dr. Ellen works with women who feel overwhelmed and anxious and are ready to stop their negative self-talk to create space for joy in their lives. But what she's most passionate about is helping women prioritize their health and happiness as much as their success. Dr. Wong was also professor of Christina Nyes at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, and she was even my clinical supervisor. Dr. Wong has been a role model for us, and I'm so excited to talk with her today. So welcome, Dr. Wong. Thank you. It's very lovely to see you two again. All right. To kickstart the conversation, Dr. Wong, can you tell us a little bit about what is high-functioning anxiety? I'm happy to, but you're going to have to stop calling me Dr. <laughs> it's a force of habit. I don't know. I, I can't. Way too formal. Okay. <laughs> Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to make for a very awkward podcast if you keep calling me Dr. Okay. So to answer the question, High-functioning anxiety is like the way I typically describe it is this is your successful overachiever, often a type A personality and someone on the outside who would seem from the outside that they're very well put together. You know, they have everything figured out. They're very calm. They're confident. But internally, they also struggle a lot with a lot of self-doubt, a lot of what ifs, difficulty saying no, like people-pleasing mentality. And they're often very mentally and physically 
exhausted. Kind of to your point a little bit earlier, Christine, high functioning anxiety, it's not a clinical disorder. And I think that's what separates this group and makes it very interesting is that typically when we think about anxiety, and and we know this isn't always the way anxiety plays out, but typically anxiety is the person who may feel really, really anxious, have all these physical symptoms like the heart pounding and the shortness of breath and then the sweating. And typically those responses lead to a bit of a freezing. So with anxiety, it prevents you from doing a particular activity or, you know, working or meeting deadlines or, you know, taking the subway or like whatever. There's lots of different ways it it plays out as you both know. With high functioning anxiety, the anxiousness and the what ifs drive these people to do more. So instead of freezing, they almost compensate and cope with the way they feel by doing more and being more. And this often ends up leading to burnout, as you could imagine, because it's the anxiousness really like propels them forward rather than leaving them frozen in fear. That makes sense. And it's kind of difficult, I guess, because then those individuals who've kind of used this to their advantage now have when they're at that place of burnout, this is almost a strategy for success. So when you take away and you kind of try to work on this high functioning anxiety, you're also taking away part of their drive, which must be very complicated. Mm-hmm. I think you've actually nailed one of the biggest objections, I guess, to treatment maybe is the way I would put it. So I often work a lot with women. And, and these women, I'm sure men suffer from high functioning anxiety, but I tend to just use women because that's the, the population that I work with most. But women will come and say that they are nervous about taking medication. I'll use that as an example. And it's not always just, you know, side effects and all that kind of stuff, which is a whole other conversation. But they are worried that if they treat their anxiousness, then they won't have the drive to do as much as they do. They won't have the ability to keep pushing what they've always done. And and you're totally right. It's the way they've approached most things is through a lens of anxiety. And that has given them the success that they experience. So if we take that drive away from them, then what's going to happen? If you take away the quote unquote people pleasing mentality, then they may start saying no to people. And if they start saying no to people, what is that going to mean? And how's that going to reflect on them? These women are often perfectionistic in nature. So if you take away the perfectionism, you deal with the kind of negative self-talk around why you have to be perfect, what's going to happen? Are they going to suddenly become very sloppy in their work? One of their biggest fears is that they become sloppy and that they become quote unquote lazy. And I often hear this from women and it doesn't really matter what they're necessarily objecting to in in terms of treatment, whether it's pharmaceutical or natural or any other form of management, if you will, they're often afraid that we're taking away the thing that gave them the edge. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I was just going to say terrifying is the exact word I would use to describe it because as you keep describing this, you know, archetype of high functioning anxiety, I'm like, "Oh, that sounds a lot like me and my 20 closest friends." Every single one of them, every single friend that I went to the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine with, I'm like thinking of all these women in my lives and I'm like, "Oh, 100% this is like every single woman I know." <laughs> Could you maybe, before we get into a deeper dive, maybe give a profile of a woman with high-functioning anxiety, maybe her general life, what her job would be, family, everything like that? 
Mm-hmm. A little bit like I mentioned before. So typically these people are very, they can be quite outgoing. They are very proactive. They're organized. They're, you know, high achievers, detail-oriented, very helpful to other people. And again, like outwardly, anybody else looking at them would be like, wow, like she has it all together. She's got her successful job. She's advancing in her career. Maybe she's an entrepreneur and she's forging all these different and new things in her life and building a business, you know, and she has maybe like her partner and her family and like just everything seems to check off well, which is also like, again, a barrier to these women seeking help because people would just be like, what, you have anxiety? There's no way, like, there's no way we can see that. And so again, that's kind of on the outside, but on the inside, I divide up what they're experiencing into three different categories. So there's the emotional side of it, which is oftentimes like feeling very worried and anxious, even if everything's going well. So these women often have a difficult time relaxing. They're just mentally preoccupied with thoughts, replaying the day's events, replaying the conversations. Should they have said this? What does that person now think of me now that I've said this? What about tomorrow? And like, there's lots of kind of ruminating thoughts about the past and projecting into the future. Lots of fears around failure and rejection and negative judgment from other people feeling not good enough, not smart enough, you know, that typical imposter syndrome. And if you go one level deeper with the emotions, it's often there's a lot of guilt and anger and resentment and frustration because they're just kind of like, I'm working so hard and other people aren't working as hard as me. And how come they are happier? How come they seem to be able to relax? And, and I just can't, like I'm, I'm with my kids and even though I'm with them, I'm not present. And that's like a common frustration that these women have. So that was an emotional perspective, from a behavioral perspective, workaholic, perfectionistic, a lot of overthinking and overanalyzing every situation, a lot of what if thoughts, second guessing themselves after choices are made, having a really difficult time saying no to other people. Sometimes you'll see that they have, because they're very anxious, there's a lot of procrastination until the last minute. And then they are able to like kind of laser focus and pull off very, very long hours and periods of time of intense work. But then they also crash afterwards. Christine Um, Chung. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of a more behavioral. And then from a physical perspective, you could imagine going through this day in and day out. It's a lot of chronic mental and physical fatigue, you know, maybe difficulty sleeping or having poor quality of sleep, inability to relax. They may have digestive issues. As you both know, like when you're just anxious about things, oftentimes your digestion is off and it can vary from having low appetite to emotional eating, the stress and how that affects our absorption of nutrients and, you know, the bloating and the digestion and all that kind of stuff, headaches, migraines, muscle tension. Sometimes you'll see the typical quote unquote anxiety symptoms of like, you know, the chest pain and the heart racing and the the nausea and the sweating and all that kind of stuff. But it's a little bit less common in this particular group of women. And again, that's also why oftentimes when they do seek help, they don't match that standard questionnaire that we all use to diagnose anxiety, right? Like they don't typically match that. The other thing that they typically don't match, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, is, you know, most anxiety questionnaires out there have a question around how much is this anxiety affecting your life? Is there this quote unquote functional impairment, which is the fancy medical term for saying like, does this condition interfere with the way you function in life. And when it comes to anxiety or even depression or a lot of mood disorders, when the medical community measures functional impairment, 
it's a measure of can you still go to work and are you aware and able to access care, like healthcare. That's what we kind of call functional impairment, which is not a fair measure for this particular subset of people, because as we talked about, like they don't have problem functioning, they over function, if anything, and that's their compensation method. And so they will get sometimes dismissed. Um, I remember when I was going through a lot of this and I would tell my family doctor about what I was experiencing, he would always just kind of be like, you know, like, I'm not really sure if you have anxiety. And I agree, like it wasn't that typical anxiety. And, and I understood I didn't have a functional impairment, but it didn't mean that my quality of life wasn't being affected. I think that's like a big thing for a lot of these women. They know that they're not living the life they want. They just don't know how to break the cycle and start. You bring up so many good points and thank you, Maylee, for calling me out <laughs> because it's exactly like it's it's what women our age are frequently facing, especially with you said imposter syndrome, with the will to succeed in life in a world where, you know, sometimes the odds are stacked against women and female identifying people. And like everything you're saying just resonates so strongly. And the part about the fact that you might have anxiety that looks different, and it's allowing you to function through your daily life, and it might actually be helping you function in your imagination, it might be helping you succeed. And how you say it might be terrifying for someone to take that away to give you peace of mind or a better quality of life. And I compare it to someone like, if, for example, if you think about an alcoholic, it's like someone calling themselves a high functioning alcoholic and their profession is a bartender. Like they continuously live and work in this environment where they're surrounded by the thing that is, you know, causing detriment to their lives in addiction for them. But it's something that they need. It's something that they work in. And it's something that they excel in. And if you think about someone with high functioning anxiety living in like a corporate world for 10 to 12 hours a day, they're going to work, they're applying their high functioning anxiety, succeeding in their work, but they're so burnt out, they're so mentally tired, and they're struggling with all these mental health issues inside that people can't see, and probably never get validated because they're like, oh, she's living the best life. She has the best clothes. She looks great. She's succeeding so much in a job that I wish I could be doing better at. So like, why mm -hmm. should I pity her, essentially? And mm -hmm. then it kind of mm -hmm. feeds this continuous mm -hmm. loop of perfectionism. And mm -hmm. I need to maintain this image kind of thing. And you think you raise a really good point, especially in the picture that you painted with the corporate setting. Like, and I've had this conversation with different people and there's this like drive of like, if you want to succeed, this is almost what you should be doing. Like you should be, if you want to excel and move up that corporate ladder, you should be doing this. You should be working your 12 hours a day. You should be sacrificing things because that's the image of you being dedicated to your job, right? Like that's the image. If you like have your phone at all times and on weekends you are reachable and you answer things right away, that's definition of you being dedicated. And we reward that behavior. Like we fully reward that behavior by giving that person more responsibilities. We tell them they're great at what they're doing and look at what you pulled off and the amount of time. And then a couple of those combined, you get that next promotion. And we keep giving and speaking with another naturopathic doctor who like said this, she basically was like, oh, so we're like giving gold stars for bad behavior. Yes, essentially, that's exactly what we reward. And you can just imagine the amount of pressure that adds. And I, I mean, this is a very, very big generalization, but I often feel like women wear the weight of that even more because on top of that role, there's also the 
I have to like make sure my kids are, you know, taken care of going to school and all this. And then there's even that perfect image of what a mom with good work-life balance is supposed to look like. Like there's even that image. And I'm sure like, as soon as we say that, like we all have an image in our mind of like the woman who's like got the work and she's figured everything out at work. And then she comes home and then she's like, take care of the kids. And like, there's just, or like take care of a family. And we just have an image. We all have that image. And I sometimes question whether it's healthy that we all have that probably similar image. And yet we take a step back. We all probably can guess what that woman might be going through. Yeah. And I think that there's this disconnect between us having this conversation and many people would agree that women have both work pressures and home pressures. Men do too, but to a different extent. And we need to kind of balance them and it's healthy to take breaks. But we talk about that, but nothing has changed on, let's say, that corporate office where you still do get a promotion. Or if a woman is at work, stays late, they might say, oh, she must really love her job. Because I guess the woman who leaves early doesn't love it as much. And right. And so there's this, we talk about it that, yes, we do need balance, but there's no change in what's actually occurring in the office. And then also the pressures that people have as parents and as mothers and being the perfect mother at the same time. So we expect perfection in both places, even though mm-hmm. we might say, it's okay, take a break. And then it's like, well, I don't need breaks. It's again, it's just. Yeah, perfect picture. How many memes do you see scrolling through social media in a day that talks about like, oh, you deserve self-care, you deserve a break. And yet I haven't run into a lot of organizations or corporations who live that, you know, it almost makes it even worse because we logically understand that we're supposed to have self-care and rest and take a break. And yet we're not facilitating and providing opportunities for that to happen. And because we know we're supposed to, but we aren't given time to, then we feel even worse because we're not doing it. And again, I run into a lot of situations where these women are coming to me and they're like, well, I know I'm supposed to be doing this. Like, I know this is good for me, but like, even that's stressful now. Like self-care has turned into a stressful thing. Definitely. It's just another thing you're failing at. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And one of the key things that I talk about is that there's different levels of self-care, right? There's like your take a break, you know, make some popcorn, watch a movie and have something to drink. And then there's like bubble bath. There's like that level. And then there's the level of self-care where you're like, okay, I'm actually taking time and I'm unplugging and I'm really like trying to rest and replenish the reserves that I'm draining. And then I think ultimately, perhaps the ultimate self-care is actually self-love. And it's really coming from a place of being able to be like, I respect myself. I truly genuinely like within my core believe that I am a worthy human being without having to be perfect at work, without having to put, you know, 12 hours in my eight hours is enough because it should be enough because I worked my eight hours and my actions in those eight hours should speak for themselves. And that, you know, we don't have to have, you know, common phrase, but like we don't have to wear busyness as a badge of honor. Like it shouldn't be like that. And it's knowing that you're worthy enough and knowing that you don't have to compare yourself to the other people who may still be wrestling with that and that you can still shine. And I think that's like the ultimate form of true self-care is like addressing the thoughts and the self-talk behind what's driving you to make these choices and decisions. Mm -hmm. And also the piece about self-love is that 
once you truly get to that stage, I imagine that self-care just comes naturally. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to leave my eight-hour day. I got everything done. There's no need to add to this day. I'm going to go home and I'm going to go for a long walk because that's what I really want right now. Rather than like you see all these things on Instagram of people saying like, oh, yeah, you have to take a bubble bath and you have to unplug and then you have to watch a movie and eat popcorn. And that's what you have to do. And that's called self-care. And you're thinking, sitting there thinking like, oh, first of all, I hate bubble baths. And (laughs) I don't really want to watch a movie. Like all I want to do is like go for a run where people are like, oh, no, you have to take a break from the exercise as well. You know, you really have to give yourself that self-care. But it's like if I really love myself, I know exactly what I want and what I need Mm -hmm. in order to replenish myself and get myself ready for another workday that I'm going to enjoy Because, Mm -hmm. you know, every part of the workday that I do now is like for myself, for my success Mm -hmm. at a healthy stage. Mm -hmm. It's true. Even exercise prescription is still something. And and especially for women with high functioning anxiety, if you give them any prescription of any kind, any kind of management, they'll do their best to like perfect that as well. And then that turns into a source of stress. I'm often very mindful of what I quote unquote prescribe. I try not to use that word even, but it's just, here are some of the things that we need to work through. So let's pick like what works for you. You tell me what's going to be the thing that we're going to approach this week or the next two weeks. And that's what we're going to focus focus on. And it doesn't all need to be done all at the exact same time because it's true. And the one that I get probably the most with this group is the whole meditating and journaling is good for you or like (laughs) practicing mindfulness. And these poor women feel so bad because they're like, I'm broken. Like I can't meditate. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do it. And they like, they try for the life of them to like sit quietly and I mean, if your mind is constantly filled, constantly going back to what happened, what's happening in the future, and like your mind doesn't stop, you cannot ask these women to sit down for five minutes and meditate. Like it's just, it's not happening. Yes, it's a massive source of stress to expect these people to meditate because it's good for you or like practice mindfulness. And like, what does that actually mean? It's again, it's one of those just practice mindfulness is not a good suggestion. How? What am I supposed to do? Like what's effective mindfulness? Like, you know, it's kind of like being like, you need to exercise. And people are just kind of like, okay, like, do I, do I go for a run? Or like, what does that look like? And so it's really honing in on like what works for the particular person that you are working with and at what level of comfort do they have, right? Like not everybody has to practice mindfulness by meditating for a half hour every morning. I'm going to be very honest. I cannot meditate for a half hour. Like I really actually just can't. I'm in the same boat. That my brain is capable of doing that. And I, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like I think I have other ways of finding mindfulness and relaxing and emptying my brain doesn't have to be meditating for half an hour, you know, morning. And then I also don't like journaling. And I'm like that one ND that is like, I don't, (laughs) I don't like journaling. I don't like meditating. Like I'm not a big journaler. My thoughts go faster than my pen. And it's just, it doesn't help me. It actually frustrates me to try. And so again, like there's other approaches to this. It doesn't have to be that way. I'm probably also the other ND that doesn't like kale. I'm not, I'm just... (laughs) Like kale. Oh, I'm the exact like same chips. way. I don't like kale salad. <laughs> just... It's just so tough. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I totally resonate with everything you're saying about like these typical prescriptions that people provide. And I feel like how you explain high functioning anxiety, that people who have high functioning anxiety will also, now that Maylee has already pasted me as like high functioning anxiety procrastination type, <laughs> I feel like also 
people will just transfer their high function anxiety from like work to whatever you're prescribing. So if you as their naturopathic doctor say like, I need you to exercise five times a week and it needs to be hard. And you also need to go and like meditate five times a week for 30 minutes a day. And then I would sit there being like, okay, so this is my new assignment. I need to do this and I need to do it perfectly. (laughs) And just like sitting there trying to be like, I'm exhausted today because I haven't slept. And like exercise is the last thing on my mind. Or like, like, I cannot imagine just sitting there for half an hour. But I have to do that because like, this is my new assignment kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I feel like it'll just continue to transfer that anxiety onto a different task and just propel the situation. And then you'll feel guilty. Because you'll have to come back yes. and say you couldn't do it and you didn't do it well. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very then, massive, like vicious cycle. And and that's again why when I do, you know, work with women with high functioning anxiety, it's a very stepwise process. And that's the first thing we talk about. What you're saying, Christine, which is like how you do one thing is how you do everything. And how you've done everything is exactly what got <laughs> us here. And so we're going to have to cut that cycle. Which of these things can we use that you feel like you can use to cut the cycle? And explain it, the whole thing, why we can't just jump to the highest thing. And I don't even think there should be a goal around some of these things. Like the goal should be that we try to take some time to relax our mind. The goal is not to make sure that we meditate perfectly for 30 minutes every day. The goal is we get some movement in there in a way that you like it for however long and however intense your body feels ready to do the goal is not necessarily to do 150 minutes of medium intensity exercise a week which i get is like sure that's the right quote-unquote prescription for cardiovascular disease and a whole bunch of things that you know we've learned and we've studied but like this person is on the verge of burning out and they're just not able to keep this up if you give them one more thing at that intensity level i would argue you're doing more harm than good and i think it's okay that we just move Like, it's okay that you like find whatever movement makes sense to you. And that's the one thing we're going to do. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't have to be this massive goal that we tell everybody this is a perfect thing that you have to like get to. Yeah. And then they're not going back to their ND and like having to sit in the chair of shame, just like Mm -hmm. I I didn't do what you asked me to. (laughs) And then the ND being like, hmm, well, we talked about Mm -hmm. why this was so important Mm -hmm. for you. And it's like, it goes all back to like, I'm thinking of like, oh, God, that's what my parents did to me when I was younger. And like, I didn't do my homework. or like, I didn't get an A. I'm like, oh, that's where it comes from. It'd be really interesting if we were saying the 150 minutes, we're talking about cardiovascular health. I wonder if we looked at all-cause mortality and we looked at the impact that stress has on health and the impact that stressing about getting that 150 minutes has on cardiovascular health and overall health in general, I'm sure. What would that look like? That if we balance that out and they had less exercise, but more peace of mind, I'm sure that if we look at just health metrics that... It'd be really interesting. You are triggering something that I remember, not quite related to high functioning anxiety, but to your point, do you remember how like it was always like eat eight servings of fruits and vegetables a day because that's what you need or whatever that thing? That's stressful for a lot of people because eight servings is not an easy task necessarily to, to accomplish. So it was actually prepping a cardiovascular lecture not too long ago and well the actual number is actually four to five like you actually really only need four to five fruits and vegetables a day and then the benefit cardiovascular benefit actually starts diving but like really it's like there's a benefit if you go from zero to one fruit each incrementally up to five fruits and that benefit curve is quite steep once you hit five it's actually kind of levels out quite a bit 
And so this is what I use to explain to patients, right? Like I'll say like, we're going to work our way up to what we understand at this current point to be the most beneficial thing. After that, it's up to you. You want to keep going, you can keep going. But if it's going to cause you stress, remember that now we're starting to undo a little bit of what we have done. So it was almost like every fruit, it was like an extra 4% or something like that on reduced mortality. So I'm like, great. So like one apple is better than no apples because we are 4% less, right? Like we're just kind of like working our way up. And then if we hit five, we are golden. Like forget this eight thing. Like, I don't know when we came up with that. I actually don't remember how this came up to be. Probably some other study that looked at eight fruits. Whatever. So let's just drop that whole thing. And we're just going to like work our way up to possibly like five, you know? And then after that, you can keep going if you want to. But like, if you needed a goal, it would be kind of like five, but we like know that it's not zero or five fruits. And it's not like no benefit or all the benefit, right? Like each little thing you're doing adds a little bit of benefit. So let's just, you know, slowly work our way up and know that everything that you do is helping. So then it helps reframe it, right? It's back to that exercise thing. Like, I don't need you to hit 150 minutes. If we get there, great. I'm willing to bet that there's tens of people who have cardiovascular benefit without hitting that as well, right? And so let's just go with like, if we stretch from our computer and go for a loop around the block at lunch, excellent. You know, like that's what we're going to do not even every day. I know I won't even go every day. I'm like two times a week, we're going to do that. That's like infinitely more than what you did before, which was zero, right? Like, like, so it's all about like really dialing it back and having conversations with these women about what makes sense. And you don't have to do fruit and exercise at the same time either, right? Like it's, it's like, which one of these is going to give you a sense of you've done it, like, and you've done something that feels good and you know is benefiting you without adding stress. So which one is it going to be? And I usually just kind of lay it out on the table. I'm like, this is like your menu. You can now pick, pick and choose. It actually doesn't matter. At this point, you just pick and choose whatever one you want to do. And let's just focus on getting that one thing. Yeah, it's like it doesn't really have to be all or nothing. Like we all think it has Mm -hmm. to be. (laughs) In my mind, I'm like, Mm -hmm. no, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. But I'm like, no, you're right. You don't have to do. (laughs) It's like if you didn't get the A, you basically failed. Basically. (laughs) So now that we've had this conversation on high functioning anxiety, what it might look like, and I'm sure now people have a good idea of whether or not they might be struggling with high functioning anxiety. What can you do if you do have high-functioning anxiety? So common treatments available either conventionally or naturopathically, and then maybe some tips that you have specifically for high-functioning anxiety. For sure. So it's interesting. If you look up high-functioning anxiety, often the recommendations kind of comes back to general anxiety uh, recommendations. And, And I'm not saying that they're not helpful. I think our traditional methods of approaching let's just say even overarching general anxiety definitely can be helpful, right? Like if you are having a lot of physical symptoms and you need to take medication for it, otherwise you're not being able to go to work or you're like just stressing out way too much and it's really interfering, then yeah, for sure. Like I think pharmaceutical medication has its time and place for this. When I went through all of this myself, I I recognized that there was gaps in what was being offered. So I was given anxiety medication. I took it. It helped because it got rid of all the physical symptoms, but what it didn't get rid of was like the hamster on the hamster wheel in my head. And the way I used to describe it was like, it wasn't one hamster on one hamster wheel. It was like one hamster trying to run on 20 wheels and like keeping everything going at the exact same time. And so the medication didn't help me with that. And so then, you know, then I was recommended, oh, like try therapy and try CBT. And so there was lots of like different things that I tried. And I would say all of them helped me in piecemeal, but I didn't have like a full like system or structure to work on all those aspects that I shared earlier, like the behavioral, the emotional, and like all those 
symptoms, if you will, in one framework. And so again, like side note, always kind of laugh a little bit when I talk to students who I did teach, because I went through all this when I was teaching at CCNM. And it's always like students are always like, really? Like I didn't know, like, you know, we see you in class and I'm like, well, that would be the definition. Like I can push myself through. I was going to say, you were just the perfect definition. I pushed myself through. Like, yeah, I figured it out. I got to shift. I got to classes. Like this was, again, your clear definition of high functioning anxiety. And so over the years, what I've kind of pieced together is kind of a framework that I walk people through. And I'm happy to share what that looks like. So I laugh a little bit at this because I call it the calm living framework. And it sounds a little bit cheesy because it's high functioning anxiety and calm living. And so the calm is actually an acronym. The C is basically clarity. And so we talk a lot about not just the physical symptoms, but I want to know what's driving the actions and decisions these people are making. Like, I want to know why you think it's important for you to be perfect. Like, I want to know why you procrastinate. I want to know what story you're telling yourself about you. So that is like the mental emotional part of it. I want to know all those chronic feelings that you're feeling. Like, not just like, I feel anxious because that's the obvious thing. Of course, you feel anxious. You're here for your high functioning anxiety. But like, I want to know what's behind that. Like, is there a lot of resentment? Is there a lot of fear? Is there a lot of guilt? Like, I, I want to know that level of, of what's going on in, from an emotional perspective, but then also obviously the physical symptoms, like what, you know, are you struggling with sleeping? Are you struggling with relaxing? Like that kind of stuff. So that's the clarity part. The assessment part obviously is running through assessments, running labs as necessary to figure out what's going on from that perspective. And also just kind of assessing like, what's the realistic goal here? To what extent do you want to be working together? Some people come in, they're like, really like, I'm not ready to deal with all of those emotions. All I want to do is sleep. That's fine. Like, but I have to know what you want. I have to know what you want to get out of us working together for me to be able to piece together what it is that I'm going to offer you, right? And then the L stands for launch. And so launch has three pillars. I usually take people through three different pillars of their health. So one is the digestion and nutrition part, because I think with this amount of stressing, our digestion often is completely off. And just nutrition from a perspective of how do we make sure you're getting the nutrients to support the lifestyle that you have, but also to replenish what you're depleting, not the like, you must follow this particular diet or that particular diet. Because I think that's, again, another level of stress for these women. So the first pillar was digestion and nutrition. The second pillar is sleep and relaxation. So this is where we talk about sleep and what that looks like, relaxation. I talk a lot about brain waves, like what are some things that we can do to activate different states of brain waves so that when you are at work, you are really focused and doing work and you're not procrastinating. And then when you're um, supposed to be relaxing, how do we facilitate that set of brain waves and that state of mind? And then the last pillar that I go through is brain health and energy optimization. So again, we're kind of talking about like, because these women often are the high achievers and I don't want them to stop achieving. They want to keep achieving. They just want to keep achieving without that level of stress and anxiety. And so we talk about brain health and how do we optimize our energy? And they do have a very high energy expenditure because they are go, go, go. And I'm not, my goal isn't necessarily to stop them from being go, go, go. Cause I think that's also partially just personality. Like some people have that drive. I want to help them facilitate that and help give them the energy to do the things that they want to do without crashing. Right. So that was L for launch. And then the last is momentum. And this is like, how do we keep up with these changes? And so it comes back down to figuring out like, what is in your toolkit? What is that minimum 
thing that you need to do to stay relaxed or rested or like, you know, have to sleep eight hours. Not everyone needs eight hours, but what's yours? Like, what's your minimum that we need to keep going so that you can maintain momentum? And at that point is also how the stage where I will also help work with the negative self-talk, like those negative thought patterns that drive a lot of these behaviors, because oftentimes we can like focus on like digestion or sleep or like taking these supplements or doing these things for our sleep hygiene or whatever it is. But if you don't resolve the thought patterns that causing them to pick certain actions or choices or behaviors, then you can't keep up the momentum because they'll always end up talking themselves out of it, right? Like they will always be like, I don't feel like I'm good enough. And that drives a perfectionistic behavior. If you don't resolve that self-talk in the background, they will at some point, it doesn't matter, like some point down the road, they will get a trigger, whatever that trigger is. It could be somebody looking at them and they interpreted it a certain way and it's going to trigger the perfectionism again. And so you have to resolve that self-talk behind it. And I think that's how you kind of keep moments is being able to say like, okay, I recognize that these are the thoughts that I'm telling myself about me. And that's why I pick my actions and choices the way I do. And so we resolve those, then they won't make those same choices again. Okay, so what we do at the end of every podcast is we give our listeners three things that they can do today. So they're usually pretty general for all listeners. Let's assume someone listening is maybe struggling with high-functioning anxiety or some aspect of it, even if it's somewhere in the range. What would you suggest are three things that they could do today? Identifying um, how many of these things is affecting your life right now. It sounds like almost obvious. It's kind of like, oh, well, yeah, I know I, this is what I think. But I want to know, like, can we acknowledge whether these things that you're thinking and these patterns and these behaviors are affecting just one area of your life or has it extended to others? And I think when you have to sit down and kind of think about that, you're like, no, it's true. Like my mind actually doesn't stop. And like, you can start thinking of examples. And I think acknowledging the extent to which it's percolating through your life is a really good first step because maybe it's actually not really percolating through your life all that much. Maybe it really just comes down to that your workplace has unrealistic expectations. Maybe that's what it actually is. And that's okay too. You got to identify like if it's the workplace has unrealistic expectations and you're burnt out there, but then at home, you're also saying yes to things that you don't really want to say yes to. Then we know now it's actually like, it's your thoughts, it's your story. And it's like percolating to different areas of your life. So I think that's the one thing to really be mindful of. The second thing I would say is actually being really mindful of the story we tell. Asking yourself, I guess that's what be the action step is like, what story do we tell ourselves over and over again? And there's so many. We often are on autopilot and we don't realize how many thoughts we repeat and the fact that there's probably themes. So I'll give a really good example. I was just working with a client who we do an exercise that goes through all the different thoughts that they have in a day. And so there was a lot of, I have to do everything on my own. I can't rely on anyone else. I have too much things on my plate. I have too much to do. I can't do it all. And like, what's another thing that's going to like fall on my plate? Like there's just a lot of this. You can see once you actually do write it all out like that, that there's a theme. There's a theme around doing too much and like, I can't do it all, right? And that in and of itself is a negative thought pattern because why do you believe that you have to do it all? Again, I often get women who are like, but I do have to do it all because no one else is doing it. And I'm like, but why isn't anybody else doing it? Like, are you actually doing something that perpetuates? Because if you, if you fun, like fundamentally have a belief that you have to be the one that does it all, are you really going to let anyone else help you? You actually believe you have to do it all. Like that is your belief. Your core belief is that you have to be the person that does it all. So then it doesn't matter if somebody offers you help. It doesn't matter how great that help is. Yeah, I would say if someone is offering you help or if you spoke to that person's partner, maybe they may say, 
I would love to help out and have a partner who is more calm if I did the dishes. But I know that that's her thing and she wants to do it. Yeah, because it comes across that way. Because again, because your fundamental belief is that you have to be the one that does it all, right? And so that plays out again in like all sorts of different areas. And so I think like being very aware of like your own patterns and themes around what you're doing is really important. So I feel like did I given I think two steps, right? So one, we were like the different areas that it affects your life and now finding themes in your thoughts. And the last one I would say is if this resonates with you and you feel like this is something that you're struggling with, I would say like reach out reach out to someone you think can offer you help and advice because we are not given the tools to deal with this on our own. You cannot piecemeal your, for lack of a better word, treatment plan on Google. You just can't. Like how many articles will tell you again, like meditation is really helpful. Mindfulness is really helpful, but like you can't do it because your mind is too active that you can't actually sit down and do the meditation. So like, don't try to doctor Google all of it. Like speak with somebody who can help you piece together a a plan that makes sense for you because I think all types of conditions, but especially mental health ones. And I think there's just so many layers to it and so many approaches that you can't piece it together on your own. You shouldn't because I tell women this all the time. It's like the way you think is actually what got you here. So don't try to think your way out of it because you won't be able to. It sounds exactly like someone with high functioning anxiety would do like, oh, I have high functioning anxiety. I'm going to do the research and find out Mm -hmm. my own treatment plan to fix myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When in fact, they should be reaching out to a professional just like Ellen here. (laughs) (laughs) See, I didn't use Dr. Wong. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) They should be reaching out to a professional like Ellen in someone who works with women and with high functioning anxiety, someone who's, you know, suffered with this herself and knows the steps, has this whole plan, these steps in place that you can, you know, check off your boxes and feel good about it. And in order to kind of increase your quality of life without losing momentum in Mm -hmm. your career as well. So on the topic of reaching out to you, um, how can our listeners reach out if they have any questions or if they would like to work with you to improve their high functioning anxiety? How can people reach out Mm, to you? Best way is on Instagram. So I can be reached at the Joy Avenue. I post a lot of stuff about high functioning anxiety, tips and strategies. But on my Instagram page, there is a way to book with me if they have any questions or just curious about how to get started. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ellen, for joining us on our podcast today. It was such a pleasure to have you. And I know Maylee will also agree with me in saying that you are definitely, you know, one of our favorites, someone to look up to when we were in school and as a clinic supervisor and everyone wanted to be on Dr. Wong's shift. (laughs) And even you talk. (laughs) I have a hard time believing that, but thank you. Even listening to you talk about, you know, giving a lecture on cardiovascular health, I was like, oh, that was one of my top favorite lectures <laughs> at school. And like thinking about that, I'm like, oh, I still have a copy of that. And like, I still refer back to it sometimes. Aww, just with all that you. like beautiful research presented in such a lovely manner. So it was such a pleasure to have you on The Well Conversation. Thank you for inviting me and having me here. And it's always nice to catch up with you ladies. And can I just say, like, I love the work you guys are doing. You ladies are doing fantastic. <laughs> and it's really, uh, really needed. So and I hope you keep growing your offers and gaining traction and lots of companies reaching out to you too, because I think, yeah, what you're doing is really important and super needed. 
Thank you so much. Well, what you do ties in so well. I was going to say we should have done a piece on like corporate wellness and how this is so <laughs> needed in the corporate world, but 100% like it definitely is. And I know continuously throughout the podcast, I could hear Maylee saying like in her own head, like, oh, that's me. And I was saying like, that is you. <laughs> <laughs> and for our listeners, until next time, feel well, learn well.